What is it like to hack an entire country? I mean, what is it like when a criminal hacker takes out the basic services provided by the government of a country? For instance, they might shut down foreign trade, or the immigration process, or healthcare, or perhaps limit basic access to payment processing and banking. Something like that happened in 2007. There was a Soviet-era statue in the center of Tallinn, Estonia. Originally called Monument to the Liberators of Tallinn, the statue, also known as the Bronze Statue, represents different things to different people. For ethnic Russians, the statue represented the Soviet Union's victory over Nazism in World War II. However, for ethnic Estonians, Russian soldiers were not the liberators, and the statue was a painful symbol of a half-century of Soviet oppression that followed. In 2007, the Tallinn city government voted to remove the statue from the city center and place it within a nearby cemetery. Chaos broke out as a result. Here's the International Center for Defense and Security. In 2007, a struggle over a divisive Soviet statue set the standard for a new form of Russian interference in the affairs of foreign states. Plans to move the bronze soldier in Tallinn led to riots, outrage, and the first cyber attack ever attempted on an entire nation state. By modern standards, the cyber attack in Estonia in 2007 was relatively low tech. Botnets directed massive waves of spam, and large amounts of automated online requests swamped servers with distributed denial-of-service attacks. The result for the average Estonian was that cash machines and online banking services were unavailable. Purchases of gasoline and food were not possible. Government employees were unable to communicate with each other, and newspapers and broadcasters were suddenly found they couldn't deliver the news. The next cyber-targeted nation appears to be Ukraine. As far back as 2014, there began a series of large-scale online attacks against Ukraine. The most famous of these was Crash Override, which shut down power plants in the dead of winter. But even in 2022, when Russia physically attacked the nation, Ukraine was never fully shut down. It was resilient and remains so today. So the next such example of an entire nation being shut down by an orchestrated cyber-related attack was Costa Rica in April of 2022. This was a few weeks after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this was a ransomware attack asking for millions of dollars from the Central American nation. In a moment, I'll introduce you to someone who was central to handling the incident response for Costa Rica, a nation that is still today recovering from the ransomware attack it's an important story about what happened in Costa Rica and what could happen in the rest of Latin America, in Africa, and in Southeast Asia. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Pomosi, 
And in this episode, I'm discussing the increasing cybersecurity threats facing Central and Latin America. And I'll be interviewing one of the people who are making changes in those countries to bring them into the 21st century in cybersecurity defenses. Costa Rica, like Estonia, is a stable democracy with a highly educated workforce. Bounded on the north by Nicaragua and on the south by Panama in Central America with access to the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, Costa Rica began as a Spanish colony in the 16th century. It declared its independence in the mid-1800s. And after a civil war in 1948, it abolished its military force and remains without a standing military in the middle of Central America. Today, it is home to several large international corporations, including Amazon, Intel, IBM, and Microsoft. It is home to many cloud data centers. Among the Central American nations, even those in Latin America, Costa Rica is perhaps the best prepared to fight off a foreign cybersecurity event although that strength is relatively recent and largely untested. It is the product of a core group of individuals, one of whom is my guest. All right. Well, my name is Esteban Jimenez. I am the chief of technology of the Costa Rican cyber defense company named ATI Cyber, A-T-T-I Cyber, for, you know, uh, for the purpose of uh, spelling. And I used to be a cybersecurity engineer for Intel Corporation. I worked for Intel Security uh, for about five years. And I also worked with IBM Security back when it was not called IBM Security, starting with many of the operations that they uh, currently have. And we created the Security Operations Center that's located here in Costa Rica that now holds, I, I guess, it's, is the largest one outside of the United States. Um, uh, working with teams all over IBM, IBM X-Force, uh, research and development, the IRIS division. So it was about five years too. Uh, prior to that, I also worked in uh, other uh, missions with Bank of America. Uh, so I've had some uh, good runs with, uh, with some of the big players in the industry. So we are going to talk about the Conti ransomware attack in April of 2022 and the subsequent Hive ransomware attack that occurred shortly after. But as soon as I began to talk with Esteban, as I learned more about his role in a private company working with the government, I could see how there was much, much more to the story. So I think it's important to understand, first, how far Costa Rica has progressed with its cybersecurity program in less than two decades. If you go back 16 years, um, Costa Rica did not have any, you know, cybersecurity practice in place. So I'm actually one of the founders of the cybersecurity specialization in the country. Um, 16 years ago, I'm I'm 34 right now, so I I started young and... uh, we have created here in the country many of the cybersecurity trainings uh, for uh, the public uh, education system, for universities. Uh, we, uh, we built up the national cybersecurity strategy. Um, uh, and just recently, I am also the person who wrote uh, uh, a part of the new law, the, na- the national cybersecurity law that uh, now creates the national, uh, the Costa Rican National Cybersecurity Agency. 
uh, that's currently in approvals. So I've done a lot of work with the government for the past 16 years. So, as I said, Esteban is clearly one of the central figures when it comes to discussing cybersecurity within Costa Rica. It's interesting because uh, um, we were a handful of people back in, you know, 16 years ago. I was the youngest, uh, probably youngest of the team. Um, some of them working with the law enforcement, some of them working with the universities, some of them working in the private, in the private sector. So we kind of uh, created this uh, public-private alliance at that moment. And um, uh, our groups uh, joined in creating the communities that currently in Costa Rica are really developed. We have people uh, in the country who has um, created patents. Now uh, we have um, uh, uh, groups uh, in the universities uh, actually now graduating from a, doc uh, a doctorate, uh, PhDs on, on cybersecurity in Costa Rica from the uh, Technic Technological Institute of, of, of the country. Uh, and many of that, um, but it's really interesting that 16 years ago, um, you know, there was no, there was a lot of people, good people uh, with theoretical knowledge on what a cyber attack was, but no practical knowledge. Okay, this is important. I have certs in InfoSec, but I'll be the first to admit that apart from some hands-on work in labs, I too am more theoretical in my knowledge. I'm not in a sock. And I'm not battling real-world demons day to day. Sixteen years ago, that's where Esteban and his peers were. They had a lot of knowledge, but very little hands-on experience with fighting live cyber attacks. You know, everything that, that was around was just people that um, came from the United States from working with private companies uh, who had experience with uh, some live attacks. Uh, we received a lot of uh, training and, and, and collaboration from allies in Latin America for, uh, from, like, example, uh, Brazil, uh, Argentina. Uh, and you can name uh, a lot of those communities who started to uh, work uh, with um, uh, talent in Costa Rica to develop these new capabilities. And I remember that one of the first um, uh, roles that I had um, uh, growing up in my career was um, back in 2011 when um, Anonymous was uh, uh, really big at that time. And uh, we had um, an operation uh, that's called Operation Pura Vida. You know, like Costa Rica has this uh, phrase, right? Which is uh, really famous uh, in the world, which is Pura Vida. It's like, like our signature phrase. Okay, I do recognize this phrase. In my 30s, I decided to challenge myself to get out of my comfort zone to live dangerously. So I enrolled in an Outward Bound course. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a program that started in the UK and was designed to get young men to toughen up by learning basic survival skills in the harshest of conditions. Today, the program, it's open to all and it's hosted in various countries. I really wanted to toughen up. So I decided to do a 10 day program in a foreign country one in which I did not speak the native language. I chose Costa Rica. And it was fantastic. I spent 10 days with five other adults, each armed with machetes, cutting back bamboo as we trekked through the untamed rainforest just west of the capital of San Jose. Over the course of seven days, we walked under the canopy of leaves and howler monkeys, over countless fallen trees, 
and stepping alongside poisonous snakes. Heading toward the Pacific Ocean, ending up in Capos, a beach town near Manuel Antonio National Park. And so, from my personal experience, I know La Perda Vida. In English, it would be a simple life or pure life. And it's used as a greeting and a farewell. So Operation Perda Vida, it was perhaps a way to say goodbye to Anonymous. Right. <laughs> and it resulted that at that time, there was a law that was uh, trying to get into the um, into the uh, Congress to uh, censor the press. So this this was a, a revolution in the country. Uh, we never, you know, but in, previously we didn't had any of these kinds of uh, uh, really, you know, like really strict laws on 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 things that you could say in public and things like that. So it resulted in the creation of an anonymous group here in Costa Rica. Uh, a big cell and affiliate of, of the big anonymous group started to create attacks against the public uh, apparatus. Anonymous is a famous hacktivist group that has evolved over time. It used to post these videos demanding changes that it sought. It always ended the videos with the following. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. When I first covered Anonymous for ZDNet, it was for Project Chenology. This was Anonymous's response to the Church of Scientology's attempts to censor or remove from the Internet material from a highly publicized interview with Scientologist member Tom Cruise. Hello, leaders of Scientology. We are Anonymous. Over the years, we have been watching you, your campaigns of misinformation, your suppression of dissent, your litigious nature. All of these things have caught our eye. With the leakage of your latest propaganda video into mainstream circulation, the extent of your malign influence over those who have come to trust you as leaders has been made clear to us. Anonymous has therefore decided that your organization should be destroyed. Online, Anonymous proceeded to DDoS various Scientology websites and enact flash mobs at various Scientology centers located around the country. Anonymous has since targeted ISIS, supported the George Floyd protests, and generally attacked various others seen as harassing journalists and women. Anonymous has resurfaced today and appears to be going after pedophiles and sex traffickers. At the time, in Costa Rica in 2011, Anonymous was reacting to attempts to censor the news media. Politics aside, Esteban's group stepped up to help the government defend itself against Anonymous's online attacks. Many of us who were a part of this incipient group of specialists started to work with the government uh, because um, uh, the attacks were really aggressive. It was actually the first time that the country received uh, attacks directly to uh, 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 in, uh, critical infrastructure. And <clears throat> back in the day, you remember that... Uh, the low orbit cannons were, uh, were really big on Anonymous, right? So there were a lot of groups building them here in Costa Rica. At a high level, low orbit ion cannon is an open source network stress testing and denial of service attack tool. What that means is that it amplifies a DDoS attack so that the volume is much greater than expected. While anyone could use it, and again, it's for stress testing of websites, it was used by Anonymous. Esteban had a heads up that this was coming. I remember being in some of, the, of those chats because we got to infiltrate some of those uh, 
incipient verbs. And we figured out that uh, many of the, uh, the, the manuals, the detailed uh, instructions on how to uh, work uh, the anonymous tools, because they, they had a, a, a hidden websites where you could not only download different tools, but, al but also access um, some of those low orbit cannons who were already built up on some websites and things like that. They will explain to you step by step how to attack uh, certain infrastructures. And um, I remember one day that uh, an attack was scheduled for midnight against um, our, let's say we have a small FBI here in Costa Rica, uh, which is the, invest, uh, the organism for judicial investigation, OIJ. Uh, and they had a, a huge attack that was orchestrated against them overnight, against them and also against uh, the systems at the Congress. We figured out that this attack was gonna was uh, about to happen that night, and um, we started to call and try to reach some of the um, system administrators who were already at their houses. Right, so it was uh, it was really really a challenge to try to get a hold on them. This is a real problem when you're not in the habit of dealing with live attacks on your system. You may not be aware of how much someone needs to always be on call, always be ready to mitigate any new threat that comes along outside of the normal working hours. So Esteban's group, aware that this anonymous attack was likely to happen that night, took matters into their own hands. So what we decided was to physically go and disconnect the servers at 11 p.m. because we were sure that the attack was going to happen over midnight at some point. So that was uh, the actual, you know, uh, strategy to avoid the system from being hacked uh, because there was no administrators ready. So we had to go with a group of the of the um, investigation organism and uh, physically unplug all the servers and just wait to, for the attack to pass. You know, and that was one of my first encounters with uh, this kind of um, uh, environment. So I'm really curious what happened in Costa Rica 16 years ago that caused this group to come together. Or was it just a hacker collective coming together and saying, hey, Costa Rica needs cybersecurity? Well, it's really interesting because what you will find 16 years ago, it's a, it's a change in uh, the strategy of Costa Rica uh, in terms of how the country wanted to be perceived outside. Our next destination could easily be described as a piece of paradise, Costa Rica. It's a favorite getaway for both eco-trekkers and the surf set. Now, if you're looking to enjoy a bit of the good life, or as they say in Costa Rica, la pura vida, then this is the place for you. So they started out with uh, some new public uh, um, uh, laws and strategies to develop high technology companies, right? Uh, everything started out actually in 94 when uh, Intel was brought in. So the Intel revolution is how we call it here. Intel came to Costa Rica. It was one of the primary reasons was because of the labor force. Two or three years out of college, the engineers we hire out of the schools here in Costa Rica are working on Intel's state-of-the-art products. The crown jewels of Intel are made in this factory. And we find that you know, engineers right out of school here can be productive in a very short time. 
So this has been a, a big success story for our site. This was the first huge company of, you know, high technology that was established here in Costa Rica. When Intel started work here, uh, that changed everything because uh, training from Intel um, on those specialized uh, lines of, of, of science started to uh, pour down the whole uh, the whole uh, the, the whole um, uh, academia in Costa Rica, and it started to change the laws in, inside the country and how technology was perceived as a uh, a new engine for development, right? So um, along '94 and moving forward, right when we kind of uh, started out this whole uh, movement. Um, that a lot of new companies started to come to Costa Rica. Actually, today, you'll find that many of the Fortune 100 uh, companies are established in Costa Rica. You will find a lot of them. Actually, Amazon, for example, has its largest operation outside of the United States here in Costa Rica. VMware, Dell uh, operations are here really well established. So a lot of people started to work with these high-tech companies. And the result of that was... Uh, we started to look at the security as a missing piece on the puzzle, right? Uh, people that started out working with these big companies realized that all of these uh, attacks were happening in the U.S., right? And it, they were also happening in Costa Rica and some other Latin American countries. This makes sense. The Internet knows no national boundaries, but if a tree falls in the forest, who is there to hear it? In other words, of course these attacks were happening, but how would Esteban and his cohorts even know about them? We had no way of detecting them. You know, there was no sensors, there was no strategy, and uh, all this knowledge that we started to get uh, from from working with the with um, international companies. Uh, at some point, we realized that that knowledge needed to be transferred to the government, right? Needed to be transferred to the government, needed to be transferred to the universities. So uh, fortunately, uh, people like me, who, for example, thanks uh, to Intel, when I, I worked at, the, uh, at Intel, they gave me my first specialized training on security. Even though I started working with computers since, I don't know, three years old or something like that, thanks to my mom, <laughs> she is the, actually the first one who, taught me how to turn on a computer. Um, but in, uh, Intel gave me my, uh, my good training, you know, uh, and, and I, I, I flew to, to the United States. Uh, my first row of certifications naming, you know, CISSP, GSEC, I took those with uh, Intel and I started to be a part of the community. Uh, I attended my first uh, DEF CON uh, in 2012 uh, when uh, I was um, uh, 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 selected by Intel to go there, you know? So this is the story of some of the other uh, partners that, that I, I grew up with here in the country who went through the same process. And this is the years, uh, you know, starting 2000s, 2010, the first decade of the 2000s when Costa Rica decided to be different. Now what you can find here, it's a hub that's one of the most important hubs in Central America and the Caribbean. It's probably one of the most sophisticated uh, technology matrix um, 
or Costa Rica has one of the most uh, sophisticated technology matrix in Latin America. And, and that started uh, in that first decade of the 2000s. So I'm imagining this group to be something like the LOFT, that's spelled capital L-0-P-H-T, here in the United States. Back in the 1990s, Boston, Massachusetts, was the hub of early hacking, with all of its colleges and universities, with MIT being central to any hacking story. For more on that, I highly recommend Stephen Levy's book, Hackers, which traces the early days. The loft, then, was literally a group of young hackers who rented an artist's loft in South Boston and started doing network hacking and even some early hardware hacking. Eventually, the loft was sold to At Stake, which was eventually sold to Symantec. I'm imagining Esteban's group was like the early loft, a group of like-minded hackers who got together and started asking serious questions about their government's lack of cybersecurity. At the time, Esteban worked for Intel, and others in the group worked for other international companies. So the technical knowledge, it was there. So how many people were there in the group? I would say that it's probably some uh, 20 folks that started out with, you know, you know brainstorming and, 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 and talking to each other uh, figuring out how to bring all this to to Costa Rica, how to how to uh, transfer this knowledge to um, some of the people here, and uh, figure out how to um, use this, the the new tools that we learned from to protect the citizens in our country. Because it was really clear to us, and it's still being very clear to us that Latin America, uh, the same as some uh, parts of Africa in um, Southeast Asia, in some regions um, are used uh, by hacker groups as playgrounds. So some of the things that we have found in, in, you know, throughout my uh, career so far, I've been able to identify that our region, because we lack uh, response capabilities. I mean, it's not the same as attacking the United States or Israel or the UK or something like that. You, what you're going to find is that this is the perfect place for a hacking group to train the resources. And most of the times what we find is uh, in those systems, uh, when we you know, go in and attend an incident response process or something like that, many times we find prototypes of malware that are still being developed. You know, We find even debug codes, we find uh, comments on the, on the, in the exploits because they, what they're doing is that they're testing. It's much easier to test your weapons against um, infrastructures who are not as mature as uh, the ones in the north. Uh, and then once you get once you get your your weapon ready, then you can throw that against the United States and other governments, right? Um, but usually, what we have found is that our countries here are really really vulnerable. Uh, people is not aware of how to respond to these kinds of threat of threats. And um, uh, most of the times, they don't even share that with anyone. They don't share that with the public. They don't share that with the, with the law enforcement. There are no metrics. There is no way to test or measure what's the um, uh, index of exposure that the country has, because nobody is taking note of that. So those are some of the things that we sit, sit down with this uh, incipient group, and we say, hey, we need to change it. Uh, we need to change this. At some point, this is going to cost us not only money, but maybe lives. 
So what sort of opening scenario are we talking about? You go to the government and you say, we know this is going to be an issue. And you find that they're still writing down passwords where the configurations are all over the place. So what sort of low-hanging fruit did the group discover initially 16 years ago? Okay, well, some of the um, initial uh, exercises that we developed were uh, really um, uh, academia-like um, um, exercises. For example, one of the first uh, uh, things that we tried here in the country was a war driving across San Jose, which was impressive, you know? War driving. Basically, you drive or bike around an area with an antenna and a scanner, and you identify open SSIDs or Wi-Fi signals. Back in the day, these might mean your organization had rogue access points. So you'd want to know about that and mitigate it. Today, there should be very few open Wi-Fi signals. You would think that war driving in its um, you know, pure form will go out and we will, I mean, in the United States, you will throw one of your sensors and you can hook, that, hook it up with a GPS device, just drive around, find some uh, vulnerable APs, right? And uh, of course, it's, it's really interesting. You can create a heat map and all that. Uh, we, wanted to we wanted to test that in, in Costa Rica and figure out what was that um, um, uh, risk map that was uh, going to result out of that exercise. We were really, really curious about it. So we built up a, a computer. Uh, with, uh, we hooked up some antennas to it and a GPS device. And we drove around San Jose, the center, you know, San Jose downtown around for some uh, 30 to 40 minutes. And uh, we went through some of the, you know, the, the central street, main street, um, driving around where some of the major banks are located and some of the public institutions are located. At the end, what we found is that a within a radius of around four kilometers, we uh, established not only a huge risk to every AP that we found, because many of them were completely out of security. Uh, and I'm talking about a huge amount of APs. I mean, four, four kilometers radio, we found around 850 APs that you could um, you know, survey and, uh, and, and they resulted with, a, with some kind of vulnerability. You know? And you're talking 850 on a four kilometer radius and, um, and, 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 and in a zone that uh, um, hosts probably some of the most important um, uh, uh, public institutions of the country, you know, uh, this uh, first study came out and it was not well received. And this is a, uh, a really interesting thing because it, it shows uh, what, you know, what the low level of maturity was in the country 16 years ago, which is um, uh, something that you will see in Latin America in general. These kinds of studies are not well taken. And we didn't know that because to me, you know, doing a war driving, especially with the people that I learned it from in the United States, it was really uh, something that you should do. You know, it was like, uh, you know, security 101. If you wanted to just uh, understand the risk, you had to do a war driving or some sort of survey just to first understand and do some breaking to understand what the, what the problem may be. Uh, we came out with this study and... Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a memory that I have when somebody at the government called me because they already knew me, right? We we've been in this initial group uh, already. They they gave me a call and, and they 
they said, hey, listen, uh, I got something to tell you. Um, your study was not well received by some people in the government. And um, you might be prepared because these people had uh, your name filed with uh, law enforcement. Yeah, so this happens a lot with hacking, where a researcher informs an organization that they have all these security vulnerabilities, only to have that organization turn around and call in law enforcement. Esteban, responsibly reporting what he had found to a government agency, found himself turned over to the equivalent of the Costa Rican FBI. So <laughs> uh, we have an intelligence division here in the country. And uh, thankfully, uh, one of those uh, persons was also a friend of mine. And they knew me, you know, they knew that the study was well uh, structured. Uh, it was informed. And uh, the good thing is that the, the reply was, hey, listen, I mean, maybe you should, you know, just, just hold a little bit uh, of doing any more of this for a, for a while, but we're really interested. We're really interested in, in the results. <laughs> so if you can pass those results to us, that's it. We're not going to do anything against you or anything. We just want to know what the result was, you know. So and some of those, you know, were typically the things that we used to find. Um, many of the uh, people in this initial group, some of them, unfortunately, when uh, to the other side, you know, and they start they started to release vulnerabilities of the government uh, publicly, you know, and also charging to uh, charging some of the um, uh, public employees or something to uh, disclose the vulnerability with details, which was, of course, something unethical. And that is where our group broke down a little bit at that time. So the group that Esteban was a part of splintered. There were some who felt that the work was progressing much too slow. Uh, two groups uh, developed. One who was completely focused on ethical hacking. Some other, uh, you know, rotten tomatoes went on creating some uh, local hacking groups. Um, but it was interesting how, you know, things developed at that time. And of course, we knew about the vulnerability level pretty much on some of those surveys. Every single uh, ministry or public institution came out with uh, a lot of vulnerabilities. Some systems were outdated, even you know, since the from, from the same day that they were installed. It looked like you know, administrative uh, uh, and, and contractual controls uh, were only interested on buying the technology, but they had zero um, uh, importance on maintenance and updating. This is a universal problem. Organizations and governments alike, they want the convenience, but sometimes lack the technical expertise to realize how their threat models change and how they should mitigate against those changes. They just want shiny new toys to play with. So when the providers came in, they, 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 they just plugged in uh, printers, they plugged in new servers, things like that. That day when they plugged the, the infrastructure, uh, the infrastructure was, was left to a aban complete abandon. You know, they, they forgot about it. So they never patched it. Uh, and I'm talking really, really important databases from the government, really important databases from critical services, hospitals, things like that, you know, simply uh, updating and, and, and having a culture uh, of security, it was not non-existent. So this might help to explain what happened 16 years ago when Esteban and his friends looked around and realized that Costa Rica needed a national cybersecurity strategy. 
like plugging an unprotected laptop into the internet and watching it slowly get infected with all sorts of malware, the government systems in Costa Rica were more or less wide open to attack. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, to me at the time was was really fun because, you know, this is something I've done uh, all my life and I never charged uh, for any of this uh, with the government back in the day. Um, it was fun. But yeah, sometimes they, uh, you know, crossed a little bit the line now, you know, uh, retros in retrospective. Uh, we did a lot of things uh, for the government that at the end was not really appreciated. And uh, sometimes it was also taken in the wrong way, uh, which also caused, you know, some frictions uh, with some of the public institutions, some banks. But at the end, uh, they, uh, they changed some of their controls, which was positive. I even remember um, when we disclosed uh, an attack from the ransomware group maze in the country. It was a big news here in Costa Rica because it was the first time that a public, a major public bank was uh, attacked and publicly um, uh, ashamed by one of these uh, hacking groups. So distributed denial of service attacks, they gave way to something a bit more profitable for the criminal hackers. That is ransomware where the files are copied and exfiltrated, and then the originals are all encrypted. The idea is that you pay for the decryption of your files, and then later you pay again if you don't want that exfiltrated file to be released publicly. Esteban and his team had experience with ransomware before Conti. In 2020, the Maze Ransomware Group claims to have stolen 11 million credit card details from Banco BCR of Costa Rica. While not directly involved with the incident response there, Esteban and his group did create some tools to help the customers of the bank deal with the incident response. And, of course, this did not go exactly as planned. We developed a, a way for uh, the people in the country to double-check and see if their credit cards were hijacked, you know, if the, those credit cards were part of, of the breach. And, and once again, I mean, you, you guys will think that uh, this is really normal in some cases, right, where uh, there's a breach. So somebody in the community uh, developed a tool where people can just go double check if, if there was a, a, their account was compromised and then, you know, take some steps forward to secure themselves. Because if you think about the ethics of a hacker or an ethical hacker in this case, you know that you have to put... Uh, people with vulnerability first. That, that's your uh, first uh, mission is to protect people. Uh, you have to protect the user that's in danger. And then you have to put the critical infrastructure next and then the other things, right? So this is something that, you know, our, this is the chip that we have. Uh, but when we released the tool for people to double check if their accounts were compromised, that blew up, you know, completely on some of the public institutions. They were outraged by this tool. They never seen something like that. Uh, they thought that we were actually the ones who hacked the bank, <laughs> you know, um, and they didn't show any uh, care for the um, the customers. Uh, people were using the tool. They started, you know, actually the first day the tool blew up because so many people logged in to check to their, their accounts. Um, and people that started to figure out that their accounts were compromised 
they were heading to the bank to change their plastic and the bank started to return them to their houses because they didn't want it to get uh, the fee. You know, people didn't want to pay the fee to get a new card. And they started to withhold the cards in the bank, uh, the bank accounts, uh, which was, of course, you know, completely unethical from any point of view. People were trying to protect themselves, going to the bank, changing the plastic. But at some point, and this is um, uh, something that we released with Flipping Computer, Flipping Computer and ourselves, we, we created the first, you know, uh, row of information about what happened with uh, this bank and the Maze Group. And it was really not well received. And th those are some scenarios that we ha have had to deal with uh, for the past 16 years, trying to change the structures because they, they were not ready for, for this. So in April of 2022, Having taken on Anonymous, having educated the government on various vulnerabilities, and having helped the maze ransomware incident response, would Esteban agree that his group was battle-tested enough to go against the Conte ransomware group? Yeah. Um, April, uh, April 18 uh, of 2022, I received a call in the morning, early morning, from the minister of uh, the, our finance uh, ministry, right? Um, uh, the minister, um, he gave us a call, and uh, then he was the uh, person in charge of IT, and they said to us, we have a big problem. At this time, all of infra infrastructure has been uh, compromised. Uh, we're talking thousands of, of servers that are, at this time, completely disconnected, uh, and this is affecting not just us, not the Ministry of Hacienda, but also a number of other um, institutions and private entities. It's, we're talking at, at the beginning, we were thinking about some 20 institutions, large institutions, including the Ministry of Health, you know. Um, but this started to create waves all over because when the minister, the Ministry of Hacienda lost their systems, pretty much the whole country was attached to that, right? You're talking about customs. Uh, people were not able to ship anything outside because they were not able to uh, charge taxes or calculate taxes, right? Um, collection was completely stopped in the whole country. Nobody could go and pay their taxes. Nobody could consult what they own to the, um, uh, to the ministry. And um, every single digital service from every public institution that somehow was attached to the Ministry of Hacienda, and we have to, you know, uh, extrapolate this and think about the IRS of the United States completely blocked, even for one second or 50 minutes, this is uh, starting to create a hole in the public finance, right? Everyone is completely stopped. Nobody can pass any uh, invoice. Nobody can pass anything. We talk a lot about the inconvenience of ransomware and not enough about its real costs. The government of Costa Rica was losing money every minute their tax system was offline. And these costs, they were starting to get astronomical. And that's really the point of ransomware. At some point, mitigating this is going to be much more expensive than just paying the attackers. So the clock is already ticking in Costa Rica. And Esteban, he wasn't even called when it happened, but shortly after. So there's already time that's been wasted. 
This was when Esteban and his team really had to step up and deliver for their government. So um, this, uh, we, this is the moment when we knew that this was the most uh, devastating scenario we've seen uh, since the beginning of you know, the, the studies that we started in Costa Rica over 16 years ago. It was, this was critical. Um, we knew that the vulnerability of the ministry was real because we practiced on, the, on this ministry for a number of times. And along with other institutions, we informed them for three years prior to this uh, event that their, uh, the status of their infrastructure was uh, really risky, that they had a lot of vulnerabilities that they needed to update their systems. And there is a number of, inf uh, of reports about this, um, both from private companies and also from uh, the regulators in the country, where it's proven that for probably five to, uh, you know, some five years prior to the attack, three years prior to the attack, uh, many, many people try to um, tell them to, you know, to update their, their, their infrastructure. Uh, but it didn't happen, you know, didn't happen. So this was a government that didn't take prior warnings very seriously. And now Esteban needed to step in and gain control of the situation, do some incident response, do some forensics on the systems. So uh, what we find is that um, uh, some of the first things that, that, that I did was uh, immediately when they gave us a call, I grabbed my kit, you know, my incident response kit that some of us have <laughs> ready for these kinds of scenarios. And, um, and we uh, kicked off the first meeting. What we found in this first meeting was that there was a complete chaos inside the ministry. Um, nobody knew what to do. And the, the attack didn't start it on the 18th. This is a Monday, right? But we, what, we have, what we found is that the attack actually started a week before. On April 11th, it was the first alert that it was found on the, on the, um, on the SIM, where in, in the monitoring system, uh, on the usage of Cobalt Strike. Oh man, that is a definite red flag. Cobalt Strike is a penetration testing tool that allows an attacker to deploy an agent named Beacon on the victim's machine. Beacon provides the attacker with information, including command execution, key logging, file transfer, SOX proxying, privilege escalation, Mimikatz, port scanning, and lateral movement. Beacon is fileless, and it supports C2 and staging over HTTP, HTTPS, DNS, and SMB. It can also do forward and reverse TCP. So you can see it's sort of a Swiss army knife of network security tools, which penetration testers use, and so do criminal hackers. Often, Cobalt Strike is used for reconnaissance. You know, and it was, you know, uh, literal in the alert that it said Cobalt Strike uh, detected. There was a, an alert about the usage of Cobalt Strike within the network. But what happens is that on April 11, every public um, uh, employee was out on vacation, you know? So timing was perfect, and that was uh, one of the indicators that started to give uh, to give us some suspicious 
about the nature of this attack, you know, because right. they, they waited. They knew that people was going to go out on vacation, that the complete ministry was going to be left out of monitoring for a, around a week, because this is the Holy Week uh, that's celebrated in, in, in many of the Christian countries, right? Okay, this sounds very familiar. If you've ever heard of the Bank of Bangladesh bank heist by the Lazarus Group out of North Korea, they used the holiday weekend of Chinese New Year to transfer funds, hoping that most of those funds would be transferred because so few people would be watching the system. And that was true to some degree, but in this case, a majority of the funds were held back only because someone in Europe noticed a spelling error and stopped the international transfer. Something similar happened here. The Conte ransomware struck during the Holy Week in Costa Rica, which is a largely Christian nation. So, perhaps in the IT world, it should be a good practice going forward to make all holidays flagged as opportunities for bad actors, and therefore be considered high alert for those guarding our most critical institutions. On the, on the 11th, we found about the Cobalt Strike alerts and subsequent alerts that referred to lateral movement, but there was nobody to attend those alerts. And it, it was until the 15, 16, and 17 that the real ransomware started to unfold, right? So you get to typically, once you get you know, a, a certain experience in this field, you know that uh, a ransomware attack will start around a week before. You know, five to seven days is, you know, like regular what you'll find about triggering the ransomware and started the deciphering. The uh, but prior, you'll find some um, uh, indications of uh, e uh, filtration, you know, uh, information being filtrated out. And then the ransomware starts some three days, you know, prior to the, the whole thing to be completely um, wiped out. Right. So that's that's what exactly what happened. So 15, 16 and 17, we we started the notice in the logs, the lateral movements, the ciphering. And one of the most interesting things that we saw is that within those first um, uh, or early stages of the ciphering, um, they the first, let's say, infrastructure that this group uh, got a hold on was precisely the backup server. And they knew that this was the only backup server that existed in the ministry. Okay, so this is bad. Backups for the government ministries were singular, meaning there were no redundancies. And now they were wiped out. To me, it was incredible that a, a public institution of this importance had only one backup system which was not, there was no redundancy whatsoever, you know? And they knew about it because it was the first system that they took down. So that was the other suspicious activity that we found out that, you know, gave us some idea about maybe there was some assistance to Conti uh, in this context, you know, helping them to understand when to attack, what to attack, because after that, some of the other servers that were hit was not only the backup server, but they also stopped the, um, there was a team foundation server uh, that was the principal server that hold the code 
for every application on the ministry. You know, so this is also really, really interesting because they knew that the code was not being synced with any uh, Git or any repository on the cloud. They knew that there was a local web um, team foundation server uh, where the code for every single web application, internal systems or everything was um, stored. And they that was the second point that they wiped out. This wasn't just one government ministry. This was that and 27 others. Clearly, this attack had to have some inside knowledge. And clearly, in order to have happened all at once, there was external coordination. So, was it possible from the 11th to the 15th that the criminal hackers were doing reconnaissance? Or had they already figured this out from before? Well, we uh, believe that they actually started much early because we found that um, uh, the logo of the Ministry of Hacienda was changed on February of, this, of that same year. So in February of 2022, someone did a website defacement of the Ministry of Hacienda. This is a low sophistication attack, something that a script kitty could do. I mean, all they did was change the site's logo and nothing else. And it was changed with the logo of the Finance Ministry of Russia. You know, and this was, uh, there was all, it was, this, this was really interesting too, because this happened in February and nobody noticed that the logo in Google search was changed with the one from the Russian Ministry of Finance, you know? So we had some indicators that probably the reconnaissance and intelligence activities of this group started at least at the beginning of the year, maybe some surveys around, you know, December or something like that. Um, but there was definitely a lot of intel uh, moving forward because uh, as I said before, this attack not only striked the, minister, uh, the Ministry of Hacienda, but it also striked 27 more uh, public institutions, you know? So it was a wave of complete, uh, you know, uh, destruction in, 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 in some of the most important uh, uh, parts of the, of the government. What Esteban and others did next was first secure the government's remaining systems and get them back and up and running. He also started to dive into what might have happened and possibly who was behind it. What we have not covered here yet is the Conte ransomware attack happened during an important presidential election in Costa Rica and how, in the midst of that, the country was weakened on guard and defending against online threats, only to deal with a second ransomware attack from an entirely different organization. Through it all, Esteban was leading the incident response, both learning in the moment and educating others, laying a foundation for the future. There's so much more to this story, and I've only scratched the surface. We haven't, for example, talked about what all this might mean for other Central American and Latin American countries as well. So I'm going to tell that part of the story in the next episode of The Hacker Mind, episode 79. Join me in two weeks when I conclude the story of Costa Rica's ransomware attack. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. 
And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, buy-for-all secure. The makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi. <laughs>